Hi, Vet Girl here today with Dr. Martha Smith Blackmore, who's the president of Forensic Veterinary Investigations. And Martha and I go way back. So Martha, thank you so much for joining us for today's Vet Girl podcast. It's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you. You know, it's hard to believe it's been almost 20 years since our internship at Angel. (laughs) Time flies by. I don't even want to say. I've been reflecting on a few things. It's like, has it been that long? Good Lord. I know. We're all grown up. It's crazy. But it's been really neat to see your career morph literally from when we were interns working at Angel, which is associated with the MSPCA. And then I knew you were working with the Animal Rescue League with some shelter work. And then you started your own LLC called Forensic Veterinary Investigations because you're an animal welfare expert. And I was just wondering if you can give us a little bit of background on how you chose that path and how you ended up being a forensic veterinarian. Yeah, it might look uh, from the point we're at now, looking backwards as though it was a plan, but I have to say that it was an evolution and it was just one step led to another. Our experience at Angel was incredible. It was rigorous. I learned an awful lot about medicine and surgery and I went into private practice for a little bit. It wasn't a right fit. And I got called back to Angel because they actually had an intern drop out of the class the year after us. So I went running back, loving the emergency medicine setting and trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do with my career when the animal shelter that's associated with the MSPCA came knocking. They said, you know, we know you're volunteering in the shelter whenever things are quiet in the emergency room. What do you think about working for us as a shelter vet? And I paused and I thought, and, and I said, is there even such a thing? This is how old we are. This is how far back it goes. And um, they had indeed uh, received funding to hire a full-time vet. And I thought, this is a nice break from emergency medicine. It'll be another step I can take in my career while I figure out what it is I want to do with my life. And what I did was I found out I really loved shelter medicine. It was about rehabilitation, rehoming uh, animals. It was about having a small group of people that were my clients so we could very easily develop shorthand and communication and an understanding about what we could and couldn't treat, what our limitations were. And uh, it was just a really nice practice for me. And I I moved from one shelter to another for reasons related to September 11th. That is another long story, we'll probably not go into today. But I ended up at the Animal Rescue League of Boston. And both the MSPCA and the Animal Rescue League of Boston have law enforcement departments. They are special state troopers with the rights and responsibilities of law enforcement, but their salaries are paid by these private nonprofit animal welfare organizations. And I started answering questions from them right at the get-go during internship. I don't know if you had this experience, but I had law enforcement officers saying, hey, doc, you know, I've got this animal with these injuries, and the story is XYZ does it fit? And I loved the does it fit aspect. And I was always exploring those questions, but also with a really strong thought about where's the justice here? Because I was terrified that I might say that an injury appeared to be non-accidental in origin when in fact there might be some good accidental explanations. I wanted no part of causing someone to go to jail that didn't belong there. So the more uh, veterinary forensic type work I was doing, the more I realized I had a real responsibility to do it very well. And so I sought sought out some training and other veterinarians that were doing this work. And I actually ended up meeting Dr. Melinda Merck very early in her veterinary forensic career. And together with her and some other folks, we established the International Veterinary Forensic Sciences Association. 
And all the while I'm doing this, I'm doing well at my job at the large, large nonprofit animal welfare organization, which means, yep, you get promoted and promoted to the point where you're an administrator and you're not really touching animals anymore. So they came, I came to a crossroads where I felt like I could be doing more in my career to help animals, to help veterinary forensics, to help with the investigation of animal cruelties and make a mark that I could reflect on at the end of my career that I did something good. And I knew that the large nonprofit animal welfare organization was going to keep running itself, whether or not I was there. So it didn't really need me in that role. So I, uh, I jumped out of the airplane with not too much of a parachute. I arranged a fellowship for training and, um, that's kind of segue into what I'm doing now. That's so amazing. It's really unique to see your profession change. And that's one of the amazing things about being a veterinarian. We can do anything and really carve our path, which I love. So in terms of animal abuse, do you mind just going over a lot of veterinarians may not feel comfortable recognizing Munchausen by proxy or any kind of animal abuse? Do you mind just briefly talking about A, what are the classic signs you may see? Or B, what do veterinarians do? Do they report it to the police? Where do they go if they're worried about it? And then the third complicating factor What if we're worried that there may be some child abuse or domestic abuse that's related, and how do we handle that? Wow, what a great set of questions. Big, big bundle of information I'm going to try and deliver. So the signs of animal cruelty, non-accidental injury is the phrase we like to use, is most important when we're talking about traumatic injuries as opposed to neglect or a failure to provide adequate care. I actually like to divide crimes against animals into three major categories. There's crimes of commission. Someone has done something to harm an animal. There's crimes of omission. Someone has failed to do something that an animal needed. And then crimes of perversion, which include illegal animal fighting and and animal sexual abuse. But when we're talking about crimes of commission, when somebody has done something to harm an animal, it's important to differentiate the pattern of injuries from typical traumatic injuries, say a a high-rise fall. We all recognize that when a cat does that, it's going to try and right herself and land on her feet. There may be a kind of a springboard action and a crush injury to the front of the face and a split to the palate. Uh, There's a typical constellation of injuries we're used to seeing. And there have been some studies recently on what are the constellation of injuries that you see when an animal's been hit by car. And if there are rib fractures, they tend to be up at the insertion of the rib. And it tends to be several ribs and not just one or two ribs at the the midpoint of the rib. That would be more consistent with a blunt force impact that's more focal. Hit by car injuries are usually accompanied by very large abrasions and blunt force trauma from non-accidental causes is not. You know, there's just a, a whole plethora of things that we can talk about, but Really, what it boils down to is if you've been in practice for a while and you've been seeing typical cases, if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't seem right, it probably isn't right, or at least you've got enough suspicions that warrant you reporting them along to the appropriate investigative agency. And so a veterinarian's responsibilities and protections for reporting their suspicions of animal cruelty varies from state to state. I happen to work in Massachusetts. When we were doing our internship, Justine, we didn't have any protections. We had no immunity. So if we suspected a case of animal cruelty and we made a report to the police department, we were potentially setting ourselves up for liability. After that time, we in Massachusetts passed a law to give veterinarians 
immunity for good faith reporting. And subsequently, just two years ago, we became mandated reporters. So now if veterinarians see something that they suspect may be animal cruelty, we must report it. And actually that step has been very helpful because it's removed the burden of, oh, geez, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, you don't have to know. You have to suspect. So depending on what state a veterinarian is, they may or may not have immunity and they may or may not have a mandate to report. So in Massachusetts, I feel like we still have one more step to go, and that is a mandate to report suspicions of child abuse or elder abuse or or partner abuse. We'll get to that. You asked, who do you report to? And unfortunately, this is a it depends answer. And it's really important for the veterinarian to know in their community who are the investigators of animal cruelty. In my book, most often, most appropriate is that the report goes to the local police department or the local sheriff's office, whoever would investigate any other type of crime, because crime's crime and they're the investigators and they enforce the law. However, in many communities, if you breathe the words animal cruelty, you'll get transferred to the animal control department. And that may or may not be a good thing. In some communities, the animal control officers are also peace officers. So they carry a weapon, they have handcuffs, they have the rights and responsibilities of a law enforcement officer. But in other communities, unfortunately, the animal control officer may have no training in constitutional rights in the appropriate conducting of an animal cruelty investigation. And therefore, even though you're told to make a report to them, they may not be the best recipient of the report. So sometimes a veterinarian will find themselves in a position where if they really suspect animal cruelty and they feel like they're not getting an adequate response, that they can, if they want, advocate more to get the case investigated. And when I've hit some roadblocks with some cases I've worked on in some communities, the assistance has come to me through, instead of the local police department, through the state police or from the prosecutor's office. Many prosecutor's office, in Massachusetts, they're called district attorneys. In other states, they're called state's attorneys. But these offices oftentimes have investigative units that can be helpful in looking into animal cruelty. And then the third part of your big question was, what do we do when we suspect that there's child maltreatment? I don't know of any state that has mandated reporting for veterinarians, but I would hope that if suspicions are raised, that a veterinarian would be comfortable making the report to social services or elder services or child protective services or whatever agency it is in your local community that can take the steps to perform an investigation. And that's the thing. In all types of reporting, it's not that you're making an accusation. It's that you're passing along your concerns. And Sometimes when I'm talking to groups of veterinarians and they just don't know when they should report, my words of advice are, if you find yourselves in the back hall going, oh my God, did you see? What did you think? If you're doing that, it's what my husband refers to as quacking, because when ducks are upset, they'll all come together in a little group and start quacking at each other. If you find that you and your support staff or other veterinarians are in the back quacking about a case, you probably have sufficient grounds to be making a report of your suspicions of animal cruelty. It's interesting, you know, having practiced in major cities in the United States from Boston to Philly to Minneapolis, I've definitely seen some cases of animal abuse or Munchausen by proxy where it's a disorder where people will intentionally hurt something. So either a child, a dog, a cat, 
And while it's rare, it's frustrating as a veterinarian because you always worry what harm you're going to cause. One suspicious case where I was really worried about this dog, I ended up calling the police officer in that location who forwarded me to animal control. And now I have a pissed off client. And of course, that client is upset. They reach out on social media and complain about the clinic because of the animal welfare check. And it becomes a frustrating situation where obviously as veterinarians, we want to advocate for that animal, but any tips on how to best dance around that relationship with a potential client? It's really, really touchy. And it's every situation presents its own concerns. And the fact that as veterinarians, we can be somewhat isolated and therefore feel somewhat vulnerable because we may be working in smaller practices here and there. When you think about what a pediatrician does when they have their suspicions, there's no equivocation about the report. There's no wrestling. It's just a matter of fact. Even though parents may be ticked off at the medical practice that the report was made, they all know that the doctor has to make the report. So I think that sometimes we are somewhat more vulnerable to the pressures of social media bullying. And face it, bullies will be bullies, whether they are beating up their cat or their dog or their horse or their spouse or their children or their parents or their aunt and uncle. They are most likely going to be the kind of person that's been used to throwing their weight around to get places. So they may try all the bluff and bluster within your practice to upset people to back you off, to keep you quiet. And of course, your safety and your staff safety is very important. But also you have to remember that if you don't make the report, who will? And is there a moment in time, a place where you can take action and put an end to something that might be incredibly horrific? I agree. It's a hard thing to do, but definitely worth reporting just for the sake of the the patient or the animal. And I have to say that I speak from a, a position of privilege because I'm not in private practice and I'm not having to negotiate those really difficult interactions. And I recognize how hard they can be. I'm in a practice where my veterinary forensics practice, I work at the request of law enforcement and of animal control officers and of veterinarians that have cases they're concerned with. So I'm, I'm coming in as an outsider and I don't have a, a practice that I have to tend and nurture at the same time as doing my work. So for me, that was what made it cleanest that I could have a separation. I just am over here doing this thing. Tell me what you do on a day-to-day basis and exactly how people can get in touch with you and when they would actually utilize your services as an animal welfare expert or reach out to you through forensic veterinary investigations. So I work in two capacities. I work as a primary investigator when requested by law enforcement. I never open an investigation on my own. So I do have um, people who have found my website or found my Twitter feed and they're individuals that are concerned their animal has been abused and they, they try to engage me directly. I always refer them back to an attorney or a law enforcement department because it would be inappropriate for me to open an investigation. But if a veterinarian is looking for assistance, I'm certainly open to having conversations and helping give my feedback and helping to guide next steps. 
I work in two distinct roles. One is as a primary investigator after I've been contracted by a law enforcement department. I may be doing a clinical exam or a post-mortem exam on an animal that I'm recording very carefully with radiographs and photographs in histopathology or whatever the case may indicate. And then I put together a case report that gets submitted to the court system. So this is at the outset of a case where the police have been called in, they have concerns, and they're asking for my expertise to help interpret findings. I'll also go to a scene and help with the investigation at the scene. So that's when I'm a primary witness. I also get called in as a secondary expert. So it may be that there has been a case prior and now it's in about to go to court and the prosecutor has some concerns or the defense attorney has concerns that they need some assistance from an expert to look at the evidence they have to help explain what's going on and even serve as an expert in court. So I have been contacted by police departments, attorney general's offices and attorneys, prosecutors from around the country and have worked, have assisted on cases like that. So those cases, the cases that are from far away and I didn't have primary case responsibility are very much in my head, reading, researching and um, expressing myself in a written report with my opinion. Cases that come to me usually from local law enforcement or local animal control officers are the vast majority of my cases, unfortunately, are animals that have died. And so I'm doing a postmortem exam and photographs at my facility. And that's hands-on work. I also do when police officers have to shoot a dog usually in self-defense. They want those cases documented carefully to one, retrieve the projectile, but two, also document that it was a firing of a weapon that was in self-defense because more and more families and communities are engaging in very expensive civil lawsuits when dogs are shot. Because unfortunately, there are uh, situations where the officer was never in any danger and a beloved pet has been shot. So those cases are requiring very careful documentation as well. So when people want to get in touch with me, they can very easily visit my website, www.vetinvestigator.com. I have a contact form on the website or follow me on Twitter and ping me there. I'm happy to, to answer questions from there as well. So that is at Vet Investigator. Awesome. Thank you so much for that great information. Don't even get me started on uh, shooting pit bulls in backyards because you know I'm a pit bull yeah. lover. So watching a lot of home video is very, very hard for me because sometimes it's a, it's a can of worms. We won't bring it up, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome information. One of the things that I love is that you and I started out as lowly interns and really carved our own path. And, you know, I always tell people, you're totally right in saying that we evolved. And that is the one beautiful thing about veterinary medicine for everyone out there. Just know what your options are. You can do anything from, you know, running a small business to going into industry to starting your own forensic veterinary company. So love what you do. And thank you so much for taking the time to do today's Vet Girl podcast. It was great catching up with you. Take care.